You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. Happy New Year from the Chicago Writers Association. It's a brand new year filled with brand new possibilities and opportunities to become the writer you have always aspired to be. This year's Book of the Year award winners from the Chicago Writers Association features three first-time authors. In this episode, we hear from indie nonfiction winner Mark Hudson, first-time author for his World War II epic, So Costly a Sacrifice. Christina Morocco, indie fiction winner for her beautiful first-time novel, Audio Love Monster talks about life, loss, and a world gone by in suburban Chicago. And Ira Sukrungrang talks about writing vulnerability in his sumptuous and exotic traditional nonfiction winning memoir, This Jade World. Coming in February, my conversation with the winner of this year's traditional fiction award for her critically acclaimed first time novel, Last Summer on State Street, from Toya Wolf plus details about our upcoming Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference, and this month's Book of the Year award ceremony at Chicago's Bookseller. Also, check out my conversation with bookseller owner Susie Takas, featured on our December podcast. And finally, a bit of my conversation with rock and roll legend David Liebert on his memoir, Rock and Roll Warrior, My Adventures with Alice Cooper, Prince, George Clinton, Living Color, The Runaways, and more. Also, now would be the time to edit and polish to literary perfection that first chapter ahead of the first chapter contest submission. Visit chicagorights.org for upcoming details about the 8th annual first chapter contest coming in the summer of 2023. New book shines a light on local families' exceptional World War II sacrifice. This is from Jeff DeMoss from the Tredmonton Leader, Tredmonton, Utah, November 18, 2022. The story of the Borkstrom brothers is well known in northern Utah's Box Elder County lore. In less than six months during 1944, four telegrams were delivered to a farmhouse in rural Thatcher, Utah. Each one delivered such a shock to the mother that she fell to the floor unconscious but knowledge of the family that lost four sons over a six-month span in World War II is not so widespread outside of the Bear River Valley. Until now, that is. Mark Hudson's World War II story, So Costly a Sacrifice, is the winner of this year's Book of the Year award in the category of Indie Nonfiction from the Chicago Writers Association. Welcome to Chicago Writes, Mark. Thank you very much. It's, it's a real pleasure speaking with you. First book, hell of a start. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it, it, it certainly is, and certainly unexpected. I will say that. Uh, never when I began this journey, I never ever uh, thought that I would end up here. So it, it, it's it's certainly an honor. And we're going to touch a little bit on the, on that journey. And, and uh, we we were talking offline a moment ago, and uh, so. 
so for people who want to hear more of this conversation, because we just have a limited amount of time for the uh, Chicago mm-hmm. Rights podcast, we're going to take this to my Playtime podcast and do a long-form, in-depth interview about your book, uh, about the Second World War and veterans and, and your experience with with that as as well. And, and we share a common interest in World War II history. Uh, we spoke about the common interest in the stories of the Band of Brothers, of, of Easy Company, the 506th Regiment, the 101st Airborne, made famous by, by Stephen Ambrose. Was, was that at all? Uh, well, let me let, let me do this. I'd love to get your thoughts because this this pertains to to one of the uh, the the people that you you profile in the book. I'd love to get your thoughts on the upcoming series uh, that Tom Hanks is now producing, Masters of the Air, an account of the air uh, of the Eighth Air Force during during their aerial bombardment missions over Germany, especially in light of this amazing and powerful statistic that you give in the book that a total of 78,017 young men gave their lives in, in air combat during the second world war. You know, it, it's, uh, it, it's hard, to, it's hard to even fathom. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hard to fathom these young men, average age, you know, you're, you're, you're 20, 21 years old uh-huh. getting on these aircraft, um, you know, and they say, you know, it was such a dangerous, such a, such a dangerous field to be in. And that if you survived 25 missions, you were, you know, you were essentially let out of the service. I mean, that's just how dangerous it was. But I mean, can you imagine boarding these aircraft, uh, you know, no pressurization, you're, you're Mm -hmm. flying up at 10, 20,000 feet in the air. Obviously the air, you know, you, you, you take any clothing off and, and, mm-hmm. and that part of the exposed body will freeze. And then on top of that, you're flying deep into Germany territory where you have the Luftwaffe Air Force, you know, wow. firing, uh, you know, firing their, uh, you know, all their, uh, uh, you know, weapons at you as you're, as you're, uh, as you're, you know, again, deep in their territory. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I just cannot fathom. Uh, even myself, you know, even boarding that plane to get on to, to and, and knowing what you were, what you were going into. I mean, it was yeah. not a mystery. I mean, they knew. So, you know, and this yeah. has, this has a personal note for me. I had, I had an uncle who passed away a number of years ago, but he worked on the B-24. He manufactured mm-hmm. them. He did, he, he worked on the electronics. And one of the, the young men that you profile in the book flew <laughs> on a B-24. Yes. And, and I, I have an airline background uh, I, I wrote a book about about the downing of um, uh, MH17 uh, mm-hmm. over Ukraine a number of years ago. So many things can go wrong with an airplane that don't Absolutely. directly apply to the that don't directly apply to combat. So three of these and and no spoiler alerts because we I want to finish the book. We want people to read the book. I've just gotten to to the place where one of the young men has has passed away one of the brothers has passed away in a b24 i'm not going to give any any further details mm-hmm. beyond that but aside from his particularly dangerous uh mos or 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 job profile his other brothers uh well the the one brother was a combat medic mm-hmm. uh, and another brother was a combat engineer in the pacific and and they were so they were doing all these different jobs that you would think that would give them a greater ability to 
survive the war. Well, and I say they talk about, you know, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that's, you know, is so unusual is that, you know, they they had spread the boys out as about as far as you could spread them out geographically. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the day, one was killed in, 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 in the Pacific, Guadalcanal, one in Italy, yeah. one in one in France uh, and, and one in Italy. I mean, you could not have spread them out any farther. Right. You know, one in, if if I if I can back up and I don't know if, I, if you want me to share the story about uh, about the B twenty four that uh, that uh, Roland had flew on. Uh, Please, yeah, yeah. So so he uh, in, in this uh, this was uh, a tremendous amount as the book was I made mean, tremendous amount of research. But uh, it turns out that the B twenty four. Now we talk about how dangerous it was. You know the the, the missions were and yeah. How difficult in, in many ways how it must have been been able to get on those you know get on those bombers but he was um the the, the b24 initially was was named uh pregnant peg and mm-hmm. he was not part of that crew and uh and the, the that uh, b24 bomber had flew on a mission deep into germany and and, and after it essentially released its payload it started its its journey back, and when that happened, it received a lot of damage from uh, from the yeah. from the German uh, Luftwaffe, and uh, and so it was it was very lucky that the that the uh, the bomber actually made it back to England, but it did. But and so when it got back, when it returned to the airfield, uh, the uh, the damage was so extensive that it it, uh, it destroyed a lot of the hydraulics on the plane, specifically part of the landing gear. And so yeah. when the plane came down, it destroyed the underbelly of the aircraft. Well, mm-hmm. so they took it back to the re- to the repair depot, and the way that they I fixed the plane was that they they literally took a a telephone pole and lashed this telephone pole to the belly of the plane. Yeah. Now. Again, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine getting on a plane to knowing that uh, that essentially the bottom part of the aircraft is literally held together by a telephone pole. Telephone pole, oh my God. <laughs> you know, and I, I think I think that speaks to to part of the importance of the book. Obviously, obviously, the central theme of the book is the sacrifice of this yes. family, the the supreme and almost unprecedented. Uh, Mm-hmm. You talk about the the Sullivan brothers who who passed away um, during during the war, and but but almost almost that unprecedented sacrifice uh, of of a single family. But I I think I think another another important theme uh, or subtext to the book is is about the broader dangers that that are inherent in war. Uh, the engineering accident that happened, the the medic that no matter where you are, you're you're still in harm's way. That's that's right, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you um you didn't intend on writing a book before <laughs> you caught wind of the story, right? No, that's correct. That uh, you're absolutely right. Um, when uh, you know, I uh, you know, I often tell the story. You know, my wife and I we went to an auction. Um, uh-huh. is we, we, we enjoy the love of old things. And so we have a small antique business. And so we went to, we went to an auction, um, in rural Illinois and the journey began quite honestly by, um, we bought a, an old primitive cabinet that was tucked away in a dairy barn. And in one mm. of the drawers was a service flag. And, and, uh, and so that really, uh, I, I started then to collect service flags and then that parlayed into traveling and doing a uh, uh, we, we set up a massive display of old service flags 
um, mm-hmm. and telling stories of veterans. And one of the stories, quite honestly, that I would often tell was the story of the Sullivan brothers. Okay. And, um, and most people are familiar with the story. And uh, I, I was doing a little bit of research one night and just trying to find out a little more detail on their story. And I came across the, 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 the name boards from, and I had never heard of them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, not, not that I'm any military historian by, by any sense, stretch of imagination, but mm-hmm. um, I, I, I was really, uh, part of it was, you know, I always say it was a, it was a, it was a cup full of disbelief and in a heaping tablespoon of anger <laughs> that, uh, that yeah. this story had never been told. And, wow. uh, and so for a couple of years, we would ask audiences when we do our displays, you know, how many people have heard of the Sullivans and then we get a fair share of hands. And, and I, in, in, in over two years of all the audiences that we were in front of, um, not one person had ever heard of the Borgstrom family. And wow. I felt that this was something that needed to be corrected. So this, uh, this became, became a mission for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and then I think about the book, I, you know, often think, you know, about, you know, it's a story, certainly, I mean, first and foremost, it's, it's the story of, you know, of enormous sacrifice and loss of this one family, you know, and and as you said, in in less than 16 months, you know, during World War II, you know, know, Alvin and Gunda, uh, they lost four of their five sons and two of them, they were just twins. You know, they were just 19 years old and they were killed less than three weeks apart, you know, but it's, it's not only about the four boys. Uh Um, It's also to me, it's, it's, it's a story of the true American spirit, quite honestly. And you think about courage and determination and and compassion, you know, when the mother received uh, news of her four son, uh, Rulon, he was, he was, uh, he was uh, listed as missing in action somewhere on a battlefield in France, the community, the neighbors of Tremont and Thatcher, uh, the blue star mothers of Utah, uh, yeah. politicians, and even citizens from every walk of life banded together and pleaded with Ro- President Roosevelt to let the fifth son, uh, yeah. Boyd, uh, return home to a grieving family. So it's, it's a story about, like I said, about true American spirit. And then to me, it's a story about redemption and inspiration. Indeed. You know, we think of, you know, we think of uh, immediately, we think of the loss of the four boys. Um, yeah. But then you, you know, you have to, and I found myself really diving into mm-hmm. um, uh, the story of Boyd. So Boyd was the one son that returned home. And, and he said, he said, you know, he, 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 you know, he didn't mince his words. He said, you know, when you lose your four brothers, what is there to come home to? And so his, the majority of his adult life was just riddled with guilt. You know, he, he had, you know, he had said, you know, as I write in the book, you know, they were, you know, him and his brothers, they were a team and his teammates were gone. And, uh, and he struggled mightily uh, mm-hmm. for many, many, many years after the war. But in the end, uh, before his passing, and he died a relatively young man, uh, he reclaimed his life. So, yeah, it's, I, I, like I say, I often think of, of Boyd and, and you mentioned, you, yeah. know, you mentioned, uh, you know, his brother Clyde. Um, yeah. Clyde was the first one killed and, and, uh, you know, Boyd, um, carried so much guilt and yeah. I, and I really believe that at first, uh, came about after his brother, uh, Clyde was killed because when yeah. Boyd, yeah. Boyd and Clyde went in on the very same day, they enlisted on the very same day and mm-hmm. Boyd mm-hmm. was the younger of the two. Mm-hmm. 
and Clyde being the bigger brother, right? He's gonna, yeah. you know, he's gonna go in because he's gonna watch over his younger brother, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, to have, you know, to, you know, to to feel that and, and that sense of guilt that that Boyd carried, um, you know, when he got the news that Clyde had died, had you know, had been killed on Guadalcanal, um, you know, I just can't, I can't imagine, you know, uh, you know, what went through his mind. Um, yeah. But. Yeah. The, the death of his brother would have would have stayed with him on the battlefield, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, and let's remember too. I mean, you know, we talk about survivors' guilt. Yeah, we talk about PTSD, yeah. right? You know, you know, survivors' guilt that that did not come about until the nineteen sixties when they finally put a label on it. And PTSD right. that was that was in the eighties. You know, these right. these young men were expected to come home from the service, get right back to work. Right. And, yeah. uh, and, and get on with things. Well, you know, for some, many did that, you know, yeah. but yeah. obviously, I mean, you know, in, in all wars, many couldn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and that's where that's where Boyd, uh, that's where he fit in. Rejections and, and acceptance. It's a given for everybody who has has spent a lifetime as a writer uh, and writing books that you're going to get rejections, rejections, reje rejections, rejections, and maybe that one acceptance. For I, I would think for people who haven't haven't bought into that that philosophy or haven't warmed to that philosophy through through years and years, that can be daunting. What did you find, or how did you handle the the rejections? Uh, or because this is a hell of a book, man. Did, did you did you face any rejections? Uh, it was well. Let me tell you this. Yeah. There was. Uh, the, first of all, there's the pressure of of just writing a book, getting things right. Okay. Right. I mean, you know that that that's part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I had tremendous help along the way. Tammy Lether. She was uh, she was a guiding light for me and helping in 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 guiding me through the process. But I will say that for me the greatest pressure came from a promise in 2015 when I, when we went to Utah mm -hmm. and I was blessed to meet some of the family. They took us around town of Tremont and Thatcher to the farmhouse. They took us to the, to the church where the four, where the service for the four boys was in mm. 1948. And the very last place that we went that they took us to was the cemetery where the mother, the father, and the four boys were buried. And I made a promise to the family that I was going to write their story. Now, mind you, I was, I, I, I did not have much experience, if, if any at all, as being a writer, but I knew, I just knew that their story had to be told. And so again, the, the greatest pressure is to, was to make sure that I fulfilled that promise. Mm -hmm. I couldn't let this mm -hmm. family down. And so for me, Certainly, certainly having the book, book published was uh, an incredible personal sense of accomplishment. Yeah. Uh, certainly being awarded, you know, 2002 book of the year was, you know, completely unexpected and <laughs> expected and is very, very humbling. But one of the greatest gifts that I have received after writing the book was from Randy Borgstrom. Now, Randy was one of the sons of Boyd. So again, Boyd was the one son who returned home. 
And uh, after after the book was written, I sent Randy the very first copy. And Randy and I had very, very, very few conversations all through the five years of writing, even even until the end. And I understand why. I mean, you know, this, you know, he has to wonder like, who is this guy from Illinois writing about my family, my father, you know, so I understood that. But when the, when, after he read the book, he wrote me, he wrote me a letter. I'm just, I'm just going to know we have limited time, but I just want to share just a, just a little, a couple snippets of the letter. Okay. And he wrote to me and he said, Mark, often through our conversation, although our conversations were infrequent, I have thought about and pondered over you. Out of seemingly nowhere, you entered into our lives in the most gracious, giving, selfish manner, doing a work and giving this incredible gift purchased with endless hours of sacrifice and painstaking effort. No one does that. No one answers the quiet whisperings of the spirit that beacons men to perform such a work as you have done, bringing renewed honor to their good names, making a place for them in writing in history among their other better better known comrades who gave all. I very, very much know my immediate family, all of our extended Borgstrom family, love you and your remarkable work. In the distant future, when all your work is done here on earth, I know you will be greeted by the Borgstrom brothers and all of our family that has gone before us. There is no end to my personal thanks, respect, and gratitude for you and your work. You are a Borgstrom brother to me. Welcome to the family. I, I couldn't sell that <laughs> book any better way, brother. That is, that's beautiful. That's astounding. We have so, so much to talk about. Mark Hudson's new book is So Costly a Sacrifice. We will post a link to that book, So Costly a Sacrifice, is a winner of this year's Book of the Year Awards. Mark how cool is that to hear? Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. And it's, uh, I will tell you, I've read it a hundred times and uh, I still get emotional reading it. And uh, and uh, it, it was the, the greatest gift was the letter and knowing that I did right by the family. Libby Fisher-Hellman, one of this year's judges and last year's winner of the Book of the Year Award, said this about Adio Love Monster. Morocco seamlessly weaves together disparate opposites, the old with the young, the Italian insiders with the German and non-Italian outsiders, the memory of the elderly with their experience of modern life. The resulting tapestry is a world where inflated egos meet their demise but retain a shred of dignity. Friendships are made or shattered, husbands run amok, wives threaten each other with lifelong enmity, but soon forgive. Death can be sudden or violent. There's even a murder or two. But most of the time, we are witnesses to the details, people, and events that shaped mid-century America. This is fiction to be savored over time. It will charm and captivate you as it takes root in your soul. Krista, I, 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 you know, I was going to say... Wow. Oh, wow, but I'm not, but I'm not <laughs> done here yet. Christina Morocco works in memoir, short story, long fiction, and poetry. She te- she teaches creative writing and other courses at Elgin Community College. Her website is writer Christina Morocco, and I'll spell the last name M A R R O C C O 
Lena.com. I have to agree, by the way, with uh, Giuseppe. Lena could uh, could try to speak a little Italian or a little Sicilian at least. <laughs> she might. She's already bilingual, though. <laughs> do you do you speak Do you speak uh, Sicilian? No, I can understand some. Okay, uh, I heard a lot growing uh -huh, up, uh -huh. and um, and I've studied in my adulthood. I've studied Italian, but studying Sicilian outside of Sicily is a, is another. Um, I think it's another mountain that I would love to climb. We'll we'll see if the life is long enough to do it. Uh, <laughs> As but, a novice, and I, I've got I've got a a writing partner who's who's Sicilian, but I, I've I've been to Italy a dozen times. Is there a a substantial difference between Sicilian and Italian? I'm guessing yes. there is, huh? Yes, yes. And there's also a lot of fighting about it. So <laughs> no matter what I say, you know, uh, there will be agreement and disagreement. But I think um, looking at it kind of from a historical point of view and from a linguistic point of view, uh, Sicilian is a language rather than a dialect. Okay. Uh, and there were many languages. They were related to each other. Yeah, but yeah. before the unification of Italy, they all existed. And mm -hmm. then one was chosen. And that's, you know, that's what we call Italian today. But uh, yeah, it has its own words. And Sicilian is heavily influenced by many languages, uh, but particularly heavily by Arabic. So um, yeah, for well, sure. It's different. I think the way it's held in the mouth is yeah. different as well. Um, I, I think if you hear it, you, you feel this is a completely different language. That's so, really interesting. I I, I want to know more, but we're not gonna we're not gonna start any linguistic arguments here. <laughs> Welcome to Chicago, right? Uh, and congratulations on being one of the uh, the book of the year winners for twenty twenty two. That's that's astounding. Yeah, it is astounding. I'm still astounded. Right, this is my debut novel. Um, yeah, fifty six, and uh, you know, you you hope for something wonderful uh -huh. to happen after all that work. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you don't know that that's going to happen. And when it does happen, yeah, you know, yeah. it's shocking in all the right ways. So I, I really appreciate the award and um, also, you know, the review and the comments on the book. So so no spoiler alerts. I had I had three books that I had to read this week. This Jade World, uh, So Costly a Sacrifice and your book, all, all of them. Are, are astounding but i just started in in your book to be a cat is a fine thing and and i could not put down your book it, it, it's initially i thought well what what do i have what do i have in common with with a a widowed sicilian matriarch i, I found so much in it that corresponded to my upbringing and and just the uh, the simplicity of of especially uh, the way you render dialogue is is astounding. I always I, and and I, I I've had a couple of plays that uh, that did well. Um, I so dialogue is is a very very important aspect of my creative process, uh, and I'm always trying for that authentic way of speaking that is is natural to how to how we we normally communicate 
you know, where 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 we talk around a subject or or the the repetition that isn't really repetition that that each that each part of that actually has has nuance and meaning and importance. And I think that um, it's you know that's one of the things that I spent a lot of time revising, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because you're writing, you're putting in dialogue. Uh, and that dialogue is invariably going to change uh, as you as you do more revision, but also as you sit in that dialogue. I think it's a for me, it's a combination between almost I mean, this is going to sound weird and kind of woo woo, but um, almost sitting in a writerly trance when you're writing dialogue. Like you have to, from from my perspective, you have to hear the dialogue yeah. in your own head. Right. And and then, yes, you're writing it in the way that a person would speak. But at the same time, it's it's not exactly the way a person would speak, because there are things in language that are not going to Mm -hmm. to necessarily work. Right. And then that repetition for emphasis, you know, it's it's hearing them again and again and actually visualizing your character standing there saying it. How are they standing? How are they breathing? What is going on in the back? corners of their mind as they're speaking. And, and I think that for me, that's, that's like the dialogue non-process process is I've actually got to be in the body and in the mind of that character really, really heavily to get that dialogue. There's a subtext of Greek and Roman mythology throughout mm-hmm. this piece, Narcissus, Demeter, and, and Persephone, that, that builds out body image issues and grief and guilt and loss. Um, did you begin with that or did you discover that as as the story began to unfold for you? Interesting question. I think I began with it really lightly and then it uh, it was more fully formed later. But I would add that I think I began with that way before I read this book or read, yeah. wrote this, to edit that, uh, before I wrote the book because I had been doing a lot of research and had written a dissertation on the evil eye in Italian American literature. <laughs> <laughs> and I was uh I was really looking at Demeter and you know the the return to Earth with Persephone mm-hmm. and uh it, Sicily being Persephone's island and mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. of this stuff and also like you know earlier versions of resurrection stories and and all yeah. of that. So that was that was in my head, but not up at the forefront. It was somewhere in the back, some other work I'd done, but I think I carried it in. And this was surprisingly the first story of the collection that you know of the novel. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh and that's where it came out. And then when I looped back at the end and revised and revised and revised as you do, I saw that there and I started saying, Well, you know, how do I give this the room that it needs. And and I loved I loved the take on Anthony's view of of Narcissus as um as a resurrection story. As a as a as a comfort rather than um rather than a punishment. Yes. Yes. And you know, he's a he's a young kid. Uh he doesn't and shouldn't mm-hmm. have the language yet to um, think through his own imminent death. Um, yeah. he, he, he just can't and shouldn't have to. But he does have this. And this is what is giving him, I don't want to call it strength. I think it's hope. I think hope is the mm-hmm. thing 
you know, so many poems about hope, right? Um, but hope of that is what he's holding to in the beauty of that. So, you know, yeah. Miss Tobin, uh, for him, she symbolizes so many things. She symbolizes a movement into different ways of thinking, into Americanization in a way, um, into his own value. But also she gives him that hope on a platter, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't think she would have known that that character would have known what he would have made of it, but she knew that it would offer some kind of comfort. And I think that's why he, um, how and why he gets it. I, I always say, I think, because while I created these characters, I, they took on lives of their own and, and um, I can't see everything that's behind the scenes. I can just kind of feel it you know, I hope I'm, hope I'm on the right track. Right. It was, it was a beautiful, beautiful touch. And, and I, I thought uh, a really powerful way of, of telling, of telling the underlying story. So this was, this was my take on uh, to where I am in the book, that this is a definition of, of loss and loneliness and these band-aid type cocoons that we weave around us to soothe that loneliness and distance and distance ourselves from from loss. Am I am I kind of Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Um I, oh I'm sorry, my my computer is making oh, that's okay. sounds. Um yeah, I think that you know, loss, and I don't want to get too heavy, right? because uh, it's the book is a good time as well. <laughs> But, you know, loss is part of life and yeah. it's a hard part of life. Mm -hmm. It's not like we just say, well, it's part of life and um, so be it. We mm -hmm. struggle, struggle, struggle with, mm -hmm. with loss mm -hmm. and connections with other people. These cocoons mm -hmm. are what keep us going. They're like cotton batting. They They give us some protection from the from the slicing kind of uh, mechanics yeah. Of, you know, of the reality of our finite lives and also, you know, our, they're more than disagreements, our juxtapositions with each other and, yeah. you know, the, the wrongs that we feel others have, have done to us or that we fear we've done to others, mm -hmm. you know, the, those cocoons, those little sanctuaries mm -hmm. of um, people expressing love as imperfectly as it may be. Uh, I, I think, I think that's the essence of, that's the essence of art, right? Is, is to, mm -hmm. uh, is to lay, lay all that out there and share it with people so that it becomes, it becomes a familiar, uh, a familiar, familiar part of our, of our communal conversation. Yes. And, yes. and, and you do it um, beautifully. Just beautifully. I, I have to say this because I, I spent a lot of time in the Balkans and in Bosnia. Giuseppe is a professional mourner. Yes. I don't know that many people that many people have experience with that in in this country anymore. As I said, this is this is another world gone by. In in Bosnia, they call them. Um, I think it's uh, Narakache. Uh, if if I'm getting that correctly, my wife will will correct me. And and I remember in this in this little town of Pale in the mountains above Sarajevo, we were we were visiting uh, my wife's family, and we were passing a cemetery where there was a funeral going on, and these three little sweet old women come walking down the road, and they're laughing and chatting, and as soon as they get to the gate, the tears and wailing begins. 
I stood there in awe through the ceremony and watched as they left, like shutting, you know, like, like flipping a switch, the tears ended, they were smiling again and walking back up the road. But th that's, that's a, an amazing, that was an amazing moment in the, in the book for me, especially the way that, that you render it very, very similarly to how I re recall seeing those women. Yeah. And um, this is a, a practice, right? I think that existed in, in many places, uh, including the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and died with Giuseppe's generation yeah. in the United States. I think they brought it with them. And yeah. then, you know, it didn't continue after that. It, it serves such a purpose. And sometimes mm -hmm. when you, um, when you, when I talk to people about this, there'll be a, a, a way of thinking about it as if it's an act or if it's false, <sighs> but it is anything, but it's anything, yeah. but that. Um, and I, I love what you noted, which is their, you know, their ability to, when they arrive, this is what they're here to do. Uh -huh. And they feel all of that grief. And it, it's the grief for the, the departed, right? It's seeing yeah. the departed off into whatever mm -hmm. uh, lies or doesn't lie beyond. But it's also uh, acknowledging for the family the immense pain that goes with, with death or the death of a family member. Yeah. But I think it's even more than that. It's also mourning for all of us. Yeah. It, it, for this reality uh and it, and it holds you know all of that human pain and it can't it can't that spigot can't stand forever it's got to shut off but um their ability to do that is uh it's astounding to me and you know the irish had the keeners and you mm -hmm. know the, there was a reason that humanity uh developed these methods and and i do think we are somewhat lost without those you know i think that uh, they, they serve a real purpose yeah i agree i agree with you um why construct a new town mulberry uh <laughs> is in the is in the suburbs of chicago um I, I think i think you put it near around forest park and maywood and melrose park but what was the the fictional function or fictional construct in in creating a, a new town or a uh, town a that doesn't things. exist yeah. yeah i think it i think it gave me some freedom okay uh you know with with just location where i wanted to place things and where yeah. i wanted to place people well, most of it happens you know in five houses <laughs> yeah are pretty much you know very close to each other on the street i think with fiction when it's fiction that is pretty uh heavily observed you mm -hmm. know and then translated into characters you also want to have it happen. So, so people don't feel that, Hey, this is this 10 people will say that that was my grandmother or this was this person. And, and, and it's not. Yeah. So I yeah. think it clarifies that as well. Yeah. I think that those two things are, are my, my main reasons. I wanted to create a liminal space, right. Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. doesn't really exist, but very much does my, um, my dad grew up in, uh, on Almond Street, which is no longer there, which is in the was was in the Taylor Street neighborhood uh, mm -hmm. before the Burns Home and, and all that went. Yeah, out. yeah. Uh, and my my mom grew up in Melrose Park, and you know, like I was, my early years were spent in Maywood. So 
you know, I wanted to take little bits, I think, of sensibilities from from these areas and and be able to, you know, stir them up in a pot and and pull. But the city is the city. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, in this suburban Mulberry Park, there's a real knowledge that they are not the city, but they are so close. You know, their distance is close. But Big Enrico, you know, he's really drawing some some differences and he he, uh, he prefers the city itself. <laughs> Uh, it's wonderful. Uh, Christina Morocco uh, works in memoirs, short story, long fiction, and poetry. She teaches creative writing and other courses at Elgin Community College. Her award-winning novel is Audio Love Monster. Uh, how does that sound, by the way, award-winning? Right? Um, I won't be able to walk through the doorway in about a minute, but... <laughs> and and like I said, great. I just spoke with Mark Hudson, his first book, he hit he hits with with award winning uh, with uh, award winning nonfiction and this is your first book. Congratulations! Yeah, yeah, and congratulations to all of us. The book is Audio Love Monster by Christina Morocco. Visit her website at writerchristinamorocco.com. Iris Sukrungrang spelled S-U-K-R-U-N-G-R-U-A-N-G, is a memoirist, essayist, poet, and fiction writer. He was born right here in Oak Lawn, Illinois, a suburb just south of Chicago. Ira is the author of three creative nonfiction books, Buddha's Dog and Other Meditations, Southside Buddhist, Talk Thai, The Adventures of Buddhist Boy, the short story collection, The Melting Season, and the poetry collection, In Thailand, It Is Night. He earned his BA in English from Southern Illinois University Carbondale and his MFA from Ohio State University. He teaches in the MFA program at the University of South Florida, and Ira is the president of Sweet, a literary confection, a literary nonprofit organization, and is the Richard L. Thomas Professor of Creative Writing at Kenyon College. His book, This Jade World, is this year's Book of the Year winner in traditional nonfiction. Ira's website is BuddhistBoy.com. Ira joined me from his mother's home in Chiang Mai, Thailand. So you won for, for the category of traditional nonfiction. I would argue that this book is anything but traditional. It reads as a roadmap of, of a broken heart. But with each piece, and 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 this this I thought was was such an important aspect of of your writing. I found myself trying to pick up on that deeply imbued poetic rhythm that you write in. In in touch, uh, one of the chapters in the book, you write this: "Hold me, we scream, hug me, we will continue to want this. Our arms are made to hold." Our bodies are made to be cradled. Humans are puzzle pieces looking for other puzzle pieces. That, my friend, is pure poetry. Thank you. Thank you so much. So they say that the best comics make the best dramatic actors because, because they bring to, to, those, uh, to those dramatic parts uh, that ingrained comedic rhythm. Um, do you think that that's also true for for poets writing narrative fiction or nonfiction? I think we, I think one of the beauties of writing this book 
uh-huh. was that and the choices I made for this book was not was that I was able to write many songs instead of one song. Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you, you know, I, I always think about like, you know, the traditional, quote unquote, traditional memoir, yeah. traditional memoir operates on, you know, usually on time, right? Um, mm-hmm. On linear time. And, and the voice, you know, say it doesn't kind of, it doesn't change much throughout the mm-hmm. narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I teach, uh, you know, I teach a memoir course and we read like a, a wonderful book, one of my favorite books, This Boy's Life by Tobias Wall. Mm-hmm. It's such a, you know, what I call a wonderfully traditional memoir because it has a beginning, middle, end, right? It has a voice that carries us throughout the whole piece. I love that book. I can't write that book. Um, yeah. I couldn't write that book for for this particular topic that I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, going back to, you know, our, your original question of writing in small chunks and writing in different POVs, I think one of the things that, I wanted to do is that was to represent the fragmentation that happens of the self, the shattering of the self okay. that happens when something, you know, big happens to our lives, right? That mm-hmm. we are not one singular person, but we begin to juggle all these other fragmented persons. Suddenly when we experience some something hard, we we experience the person we are experiences, but we also think about the person we were, the person, you know, we will be. Right. And we're juggling all these other other us's too at the same time. And so in many ways, thinking about language and music, I, you know, one of the biggest joys of writing the book was that I can I can write one section and utilize one type of music. Right. Mm -hmm. Then I can go to the next section. And this section is about, you know, um, you know, time with my mother or something. Right. Um, or just just sitting, you know, in Thailand and just kind of observing the world that goes by us. Right. And those sentences are longer. Right. Because the landscape of Thailand, the flat of central Thailand in particular, yeah. it has that yawning effect. Right. And that yawning effect has that lyricism of longer sentences with a lot of cadences in, that dip up and down. And then you go to a much more tense chapter or tense section of book and the sentences are shorter right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it's driven by action without thought right Interesting. um and so that presents a different music too and i think one of the beautiful things i love reading you know why i love reading poetry and why i love reading collection of essays and why i still love listening to complete albums of music mm-hmm. right is that an artist possesses with it within themselves, right? Um, yeah, a variety of of musics, right? A variety of songs yeah. that they want to represent. Mm-hmm. And so, when you mentioned for you know, um, what is it? The the lyricism, the po- the, the the poetry of, you know, um, how poets handle like prose, right? Yeah. I always think of how Jane Hirschfeld in her her book Nine Gates always says that. Every poet with every poem creates a new language for that poem. So I brought that up because there are patterns and uh, repetitions and alliterations and rhythm that poets employ that non-poet creative writers might not even consider. But I found that time and time again in your book. In the acknowledgments, uh, normally this throwaway section 
that I, I think most of us just go, yeah, let me get through this and then and then get on with the book, right? Um, but you write this every day for six weeks. I sat at my mother's porch in Chiang Mai, uh, writing in a gray hoodie, even though the temperature was hot, even though I sweated and suffered. I am grateful for that hoodie. I am grateful for that porch and the fan aimed at my legs to chase away the mosquitoes. I could not have written a draft of this book anywhere else, but there, there, as Thailand was trying to find herself again, there in the heat of the rainy, rainy season, there with my family ever present again that that wonderful poetic rhythm man oh thank you i always love acknowledgement pages actually and so i actually read them because i want to find something that perhaps goes against <laughs> the typical acknowledgement page which i'm like oh here yeah to my ear, right um and sometimes you find some really wonderful ones right uh like you know tobias was saying memory has his own story to tell or something like that or you find these new insights on how a writer puts together their work i'm you know lately i've been so much more interested in the process of an artist rather than rather than the product an artist creates mm -hmm. but the process in which they go into that and I keep telling my students, take stock of your uh, your process. You know, what's that like? That's going to teach you more about writing than anything else. Uh, we were we were talking about vulnerability a little a little bit ago. In, in within that that vulnerability, there are terrific opportunities for humor, uh, which come out in this book. I found myself chuckling aloud at a, at a, at a few places, a few passages, and grimacing when I realized that the story of Ralph and Tiffany was a way of uh, of compartmentalizing the the impasse with with your ex mm -hmm. um in in the conversation at the uh, at the restaurant with your uh, was it your cousin? Yeah, 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 yeah. that's in, I, that's in the chapter stupid men, right and talking yes. about like, yep yep right. I mean, um, absolutely. <laughs> And that was so that was so beautifully done. I, I'm a, I'm a, a huge fan of of Ernest Hemingway, predominantly for his for his his dialogue and and the way he approaches dialogue and moves and, and moves the action forward in this in this sort of non-committal kind of way. So he's he's kind of he's kind of talking around a subject, but still mm -hmm. moving you forward through you know uh, toward you know through the story. Um, which I thought you did beautifully with with this piece. It's also, I think, to me, how that section really illustrates my relationship with my cousin, my cousin yeah. Oy, right, who who had also gone through a uh, a breakup of her own, yeah. um, and how we 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 talk about we talk about our lives, but we also talk about it sideways, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, we never talk about it directly. We never mm -hmm. come out and say like, this is what really happened, right? We we always, there's something, again, I think protected and it really illustrates not only our, my relationship with her with how, but how Thai people talk mm -hmm. about relationships mm -hmm. is that they never want to talk about it like, this is what happened, right? We always go, well, this is like how it happened, right? <laughs> this mm -hmm. is a simulacra of what, what has happened we go around it right and i think you know from for a lot of uh that that section like ralph and tiffany that imagined space yeah. right um was really to me and i keep saying I, those imagined spaces in our, our lives are actually more telling mm -hmm. than our mm -hmm. lived space 
right? I think we live in our heads um, more than we do. We, we live in the walking and talking world, I think, mm-hmm. you know. And so those moments come out in really strange ways. And for me, they always come out in story. <laughs> they always come out in fictions or what ifs, right? And, and this book is a beautiful illustration of this. It really is the essence of art to turn our internal pain uh, into this larger communal beauty, yeah. right? Absolutely. Well, you know, and in many ways, like there's this thing about failed relationships in Thailand. Yeah. Um, that we <laughs> we end up just laughing about it. Uh-huh. We end up laughing about it, though though some of that spite and anger stick with us, right? Um, it's the same way in Irish families too, my friend. Right. You know, but, <laughs> but there's something about that and, and that that there that is both comedic to us about what we had gone through. Uh-huh. Right. And comedic about, you know, who we are now striving to find our feet. There's something funny about that, right? That we fall, but we'll get up. <laughs> we may not walk the same way again, but we'll get up. I, I had this, I, I don't know if you remember the uh, the band, the Judy Bats, uh, but uh, in, in I Am Sad, the, uh, the, the second, uh, the second story in, in the book, um, there there was a song some years ago where they where they uh, called convalescing in spain where he's writing this fictitious letter to that he's never going to send to to a long lost love and how he's he's there in spain sort of getting over getting over that that heartache in an, in a somewhat unfamiliar place or in, at least in a beautiful place i couldn't help but but hear that song in in that in that chapter the the change from from the the first chapter the the encounter with with a woman in in a, a cheap motel and and that transition it 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 really kind of had this the the first the first chapter had this sort of dusk feeling, at least at least in my mind, and then it opened up into this beautiful brightness. Uh, with I am sad, well, it, and it's funny too to me. I think about that chapter every time I think about writing um, that chapter. I, I literally think about um, the porch that 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 first section of that chapter exists on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think about it because it's one of my favorite areas because it's one of the brightest areas in terms of light mm. right when i think of that area of the house right now it's nighttime in thailand but um <laughs> it's right behind me the porch area that that my mom does it's my favorite because of the brightness that surrounds that time so i'm you know thinking back mm. on that chapter now and when i first wrote it i mean it literally was written in the brightest place of mm-hmm. of the house and there is such a maybe maybe what's represented in that chapter that that I'm, now I'm thinking about it now because it was literally the first thing that I wrote for this book was that mm-hmm, chapter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was the the moment where I was ready to to really take on these things right yeah. a moment of clarity that I was yeah. ready to start writing about it and so I think that I'm, I'm so I'm so happy that that you had mentioned that because I never thought about it that way I've never thought about that way, but I think there's a clarity in that light, right? That was being, that was probably kind of transferring onto the writing itself too. It, it does. And I was going to ask you about that because you teach creative writing. If, 
if that's something that you can teach or if if that's if that's just a natural offshoot I, I suppose of writing at a place or about a place depending upon your um, your perception of it. so if, if you have if you have this bright and lively image of of a place or impression of a place if if somehow subconsciously that that is transferred onto the page via the words that you mm -hmm. choose I, I think it does. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can teach that, but I always tell my students to really be aware where they're writing, yeah. where they're, yeah. what their writing looks like, where they're writing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things, you know, that I, that I do nowadays in my classes, I challenge them um, with, for example, I say, set a timer for yourself for 20 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. Write, write in your room. If that's where you usually write, right there for 20 minutes and after that timer goes off close up your laptop or your notebook and travel on campus to some other part of mm -hmm. campus and write and set another timer for 20 minutes mm -hmm. right and then travel to another part when the timer mm -hmm. goes off one of the things that, that i love about that assignment for them is that they're i think they're 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 allowing themselves to initiate with space differently mm -hmm. right you know, Kenyon College is a 100% residential college, right? The students are always there. They're not going to go anywhere. So when they write in their dorm rooms, which is usually old and darker, right? It's a different thing when they go to the library, this brand new library they have in Kenyon that is open space and bright, mm -hmm. right? And they actually, I, you know, they're telling me right now that that's where they're more productive, actually. In their rooms, they love that 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 communal space, yeah. Which I think yeah. is interesting too, because we always think about writing as a very solitary act. You, you hold yourself up in in a room and you write, but they're finding a lot more energy when they're out in a very communal, open, bright space, right? Any other mm -hmm. other place, and then they move to the cafeteria and write, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's a different experience, right? And so I do think one of the things, and I don't teach them. You know, it's hard to teach them how to gauge that space, but I think everyone has a different kind of algorithm when it comes to you know where they where they where they see themselves, right, or mm -hmm. what what's their process. But it really begins to have them really take stock of themselves and what their writing does in each different space that they occupy, right? Yeah. And I always tell them to vary up the routine. Don't always start in your room start start at the library and then maybe end in your room right so that you can see maybe is this consistent or is it just what is it this is about that's that, and that's my kind of writing process right now i'm very dynamic i'm not very static with my writing mm -hmm. i move around i have to move around I have find you ever like analyzed have, have you ever analyzed why why that is i haven't i, I have a friend who <laughs> data mines his mm -hmm. process mm -hmm. right like he would he would write down how many words he wrote, right, in various places. So he has like a column on a spreadsheet or place, right? right. Words written, time mm -hmm. written, right? And then mm -hmm. he has found out that he writes the most at three o'clock in the library, right? The one of the busiest times, right? Uh -huh. uh, he writes the most words and most productive during that time, and, and sitting in this area of the library. So I have a friend who does that, 
but you know for me i think the right now um it was just like the chaoticness of like my life my writing my writing process now as a father is so different yeah. from my writing process when i didn't have a kid <laughs> yeah. right when i didn't have a kid i could be more static i could stay in one place i can do yeah. it when i have a kid now it's like okay i have 10 minutes go right <laughs> i have 10 uh -huh. minutes over here go i have i'm in the car you're waiting for something i have five minutes go <laughs> that's pretty much so i think it's really i think what, what, what one really finds nowadays is that our writing process really reflects what, what's happening in our lives too at the same time i'm gonna i'm gonna finish up with this um i think that uh one really powerful element of this book uh, has to do with being in thailand you're telling an intrinsically human story, something that we all go through, we're all faced, uh, but you, you're you putting it into, into this other stunning setting and then, and then wrapping it up with the elements of, of your Thai experience with your Thai family. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we get that really dynamic mix so that we're engaged personally on on one hand uh and then and then drawn into into the the exotic or the other nature of of the story i, I i'd love you to to riff on that for a moment you know there, there was a time during the, the breakup where one of the biggest things was that i wanted to not return to the states you know i didn't want to go sure. back yeah i wanted to stay in thailand um or hong kong or any of the any you know there's a moment where i was looking actively looking for jobs just to be mm -hmm. away mm -hmm. and one of the things that i think that i found out about writing this and, it's, and also one of the things that is so true to life is that you can't really escape these things they, they come with you they shadow yeah. you there's a shadow that always follows yeah. i think what, what thailand provides for me and i think this is something that every time i return to thailand the thing that i really hold on to is how Thailand forces me to slow down mm -hmm. and really see things in a different way. And I think it's because of how it's the, it's the Buddhist part of this country, right? Um, mm -hmm. Buddhism is, is the way of, of being here, right? And mm -hmm. Buddhism mm -hmm. is so much about slowing down, seeing where you are, seeing where, you know, looking at the paths that you could have taken, what would happen, right? Really evaluate those things. And I think for me, Thailand became that moment, at least Thailand when writing this book became that place, became that, that meditative space mm -hmm. to, to occupy. I really don't think I could have written this book back in the States. I think I needed to be surrounded not only by the Thai culture, um, the landscape of it, but really more than anything, the consistent love of my family um, that is that's missing, right? Yeah. When I'm in yeah. when I'm in America, right? All yeah. like all 100% of my family are they're all in Thailand, right? And so I think that comfortable space that's created with the people I love most mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. was able to I was able to sit there and write these things that were that were were weren't safe. Ira Sukrungrang is a memoirist, essayist, poet. I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep, keep working on it, brother. Uh, I'm going to get, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get it right. Uh, Ira is a memoirist, essayist, poet, 
fiction writer and one of uh, this year's Book of the Year award winners from the Chicago Writers Association for a sumptuous memoir, This Jade World, in the category traditional nonfiction. His website is BuddhistBoy.com, and we'll post that in the notes below. You bet we will. I'd like to thank all of our authors and to hear the full conversations with each of these wonderful authors. Check out my Playtime podcast and don't miss my conversation with Toya Wolf on our February episode. And now, a couple of announcements from the Chicago Writers Association. Being called one of the very best writers conferences by the Writer Magazine two years in a row just wasn't good enough. The deadline has passed for the early bird special, but it's still not too late to secure your spot for the fourth annual Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference, March 25th and 26th, 2023 at the Warwick Allerton Hotel in downtown Chicago. On hand, we'll have five agents, three traditional publishers looking for the next big book, ready to hear your five-minute pitch. Craft sessions, voice, plotting, and the importance of scene, social media workshop, sessions on the legal aspects of writing. There will be a panel on poetry, fiction, nonfiction, oral history. You can find motivation, inspiration, and meet new friends. And a delicious blast for the Saturday banquet dinner. With a great story and a great pitch, you might just make a connection. And that connection could lead you to being named one of Chicago Writers Association's Book of the Year award winners. A phenomenal selling point. A direct link to registration is in the notes below simply a click away or visit chicagorights.org. You are invited to join us at the 12th Annual Book of the Year Award Ceremony on January 21st, 2023 at 7 p.m. at the Bookseller, 4736 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. The Chicago Writers Association is a creative community of Chicagoland writers established in 2003 and federally registered as a 501c3 nonprofit organization in 2008. We span many genres, styles, and levels of experience. Our purpose is to share information, experiences, and encouragement with those of us for whom written expression is an integral part of life. Stay updated on CWA News and events by clicking the links in the notes below. And like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-the-minute notifications as well as a connection with our growing community of authors, writers, and poets. How about a membership to the Chicago Writers Association and unlock a wealth of writing and publishing resources and benefits for just $25 for a year? A CWA membership makes a great and thoughtful gift. Visit chicagorights.org to get started. And before we go, David Liebert was a founding member of the top 10 musical group, The Happenings, and went on to manage such acts as Alice Cooper, Parliament Funkadelic, George Clinton, Rare Earth, and Prince. I recently spoke to David about his new memoir, Rock and Roll Warrior. Hey, Bill. Hey, David. How are you? Good, man. Let me uh, let me get my thing set up here. And... No worries. And just for your peace of mind, uh, I just run video for our uh, our interaction during the conversation. There you are, buddy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, I, I, you know, if, if there's a, if there's a hair out of place or Bigfoot runs through the back of the room, well, Bigfoot runs through the back of the room. We're posting that. 
Uh, but other than that, we're <laughs> we'll be uh, we'll be good. To paraphrase a song by The Happenings, all David Liebert wanted was music, music, music. The rock and roll landscape is littered with winners and losers, but true warriors are few and far between. After a taste of life in the spotlight with the hit group The Happenings, David Lieber charted a long and legendary course behind the curtain managing and representing such acts as George Clinton, Alice Cooper, Vanilla Fudge, and Parliament Funkadelic, to name only a few. To adequately cover that career and those iconic acts, David, you're, you're going to be my guest here for the next 77 hours, right? Uh, well, I can only do 75 hours. My, my uh, schedule is a bit tight. Noted. Uh, David's <laughs> just published memoir is Rock and Roll Warrior. And like I said, we'll probably shave that 75 hours uh, down to about an hour. Um, David, I got to say, having read every single word of Rock and Roll Warrior, I thought I would begin where every proper conversation with a uh, with a pop icon should begin. Rescue Dogs. All right. Sounds uh, good. And, and by the way, welcome. Uh, it's It's really, really great to have you here. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. But going from uh, from R and B and rock and roll uh, to Rescue Dogs is uh, is kind of like a heavy metal icon opening up a family friendly restaurant in uh, in Arizona. Who would believe? Well, you know, I've been a dog person my entire life. Uh, yeah, always had dogs. As a matter of fact, when I got hired to be Alice Cooper's tour manager, part of the deal was that. Uh, my beagle at the time, Dolly the dog, who by the way has dog. a chapter in my book, uh -huh. uh, would be uh, uh, taken to the Galicia State where Alice Cooper and the band and all the roadies and girlfriends and their dogs and cats live. And that the, uh, the caretaker, when we went on tour, the caretaker that uh, took care of the animals and grounds that uh, Dolly the dog would be uh, one of those uh, animals that would be under his auspices. That was part of the deal. Otherwise, I couldn't take the job. So I've always been a, a dog person. I've even had my share of cats. Good man. Good man. Um, I, I, so the, the reason I bring that up uh, is for a couple of reasons. Apart, apart from having a house full of rescue animals myself, uh, three cats and a dog, and my sister-in-law runs a, runs a rescue effort in Bosnia, of all places, oh. um, where there's an incredible need. I, I, I was there during the war and uh, and witnessed um, the, the heartbreaking scenes of of former pets, you know, let loose by their owners who couldn't care for them any longer. And that and that Gee. has just kind of exploded and blossomed mm -hmm. in the years after the war. Uh, so I, I published a, a war memoir a few years back, and I also host a podcast for the Chicago Writers Association, which you will invariably have have a part in 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 this upcoming uh, podcast post in uh, at, at the at the start of the month at, at the first of the year. Ending with dogs is this perfect redemptive value adding added ending, and it, it's just the the book is a roller coaster. It begins with your very humble beginnings and roller coasters us through crazy and tumultuous years and then that ending is just perfect so i i'm wondering and and i'll ask this for for myself but i'll also ask this for for our listeners uh at the chicago writers association if you got any any help in in writing the book because it's such a perfect poetic ending 
Well, thank you. Uh, that's uh, that's really nice to hear. No, I, I wrote the whole thing myself. I uh, feel that uh, I wanted it to come from me. I wanted yeah. it to sound like me. And I felt that I was able enough to, to write a book as long as I edited it 50 million times. It would be <laughs> what I was doing. I felt it would be more truthful, more honest if it was my own words. I know a lot mm -hmm. of people, a lot of artists and uh, people get someone to write it and they do interviews. I did none of that. I created, I, I devised a procedure, I suppose, where when I decided finally to write the book, I would write things down like events, different things. And, mm -hmm. and then uh, without any uh, regard to uh, chronology or, spelling grammar punctuation none of that i wanted to just have a a a stream of consciousness sitting in front of a laptop and i would just bang it out on the mm -hmm. uh, on the keyboard and worry about everything else later and that seemed to work for me yeah. i would go back and i'd fix it and i'd take a look at it uh you know a few days later or a day or two later and see how i could you know make it better and in the end i wanted it to be good I didn't want it to be a uh, tell-all, uh, salacious kind of, you know, rock and roll uh, thing. I mean, there's a little bit of that in the book, because we're talking about rock and roll. Yeah. But I wanted it to be more informative. I wanted it to be an easy read. I wanted it to be witty. I wanted it to be a fun read, and yet... Uh, be able to portray to people for people to get the idea of what it felt like mm -hmm. to be in my shoes to be a fly on the wall with some of these famous people that I was associated with and uh, from the reviews it uh, appears that I accomplished that so I'm very pleased I'm very pleased with uh, you did you did that can be for and and you know I I almost use the phrase first time author but you're really not you're really not a first-time author in as much as writing songs uh, and writing writing hit songs, which you've done, has has a natural arc, a natural storytelling imbued within it. So, so you're just applying that. I, I had a I had a great <laughs> argument with a uh, with a poet friend of mine in in which I said poets are just lazy authors, and <laughs> and 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 he and he immediately shot back. But authors just can't get to the point. Uh, good one. Good retort. It, good was, retort. It, was, it was a great retort. You know, my girlfriend, Angie, reminded me just the other day. She says, you know, the one thing you never mention when people, uh, you know, uh, uh, think of you as a first time artist. I actually wrote a screenplay okay. uh, in the 80s. Uh, so when I wrote that screenplay, which was about... Uh, it's called Doing Time, and if, if anyone's read my book, they know that I spent a little bit of time in prison. That's when I wrote that thing, and it was sort of autobiographical about somebody mm -hmm. like be, being in stir. That's when I realized that, uh, you know, if I ever write a book, I could probably be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, so so structurally, there are mistakes or or landmines or or trip ups that you could have made as not a a book writer per se especially a memoir writer where there's where there's there there is a there is a technique there's a style there's a structure um that's that's part of that and 
boy, you hit you hit on every one of those points in a positive way. Uh, I'll just I'll just sort of detail this the the opening a little bit where you provide a great opening vignette backstage at Woodstock '99 with Parliament mm-hmm. Funkadelic, which establishes the stresses and and magic of being a road ma- uh, a road manager. Uh, and then and then you you step back from that and you take us through your life. The drama peaks with drugs and excess, and we are wondering if you're going to get busted. And then and then again, the ending has this great redemptive settling uh, settling finish. And those those are masterful strokes. Well, thank you. I I, uh, I yes, I did write it on my own, but I can't take all the credit. Uh-huh. To- things uh i like to read so yeah. I, I read a lot of books and i read a lot of uh, biographies and autobiographies i seem to uh, more so than novels so uh-huh. i had an idea of structure also i had a fabulous editor who has uh, been a friend of mine for decades uh, uh susie michelson yeah she uh she gave me some uh, a great direction uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, we sometimes get into arguments about what should and shouldn't be. And uh, she would win most of the time. I would win <laughs> some of the time. But that process, I really believe, helped me uh, uh, write a, a structurally sound book and uh, mm-hmm. has a certain flow to it. That was one of the things I wanted to achieve in writing that book. I give a lot of credit to Susie Michelson. She was just a, a fabulous editor in that regard. It's it's always important to have eyes on uh, on a work in progress. Um, yeah. But you you know so one of the other one of the other structural elements is you have this ability of stepping back and viewing your life through through a longer lens where you don't get caught in in minutia that's important to you or is part of your story. But you're kind you're kind of seeing the story through the audience's eyes, and maybe maybe someone who isn't as invested in you or doesn't know you. I, I that's true. I think when I wrote it, especially when, when I was writing about mm-hmm. specific people, if if I was at that point, I would uh, try to think about how would they feel about this. Would they agree with this? Would they be offended by this? Uh, is it really true? Should I, you know, I found out that when you write a book, there's a lot of decisions you have to make. Do I really want to throw this person under the bus? Is it yeah. fair? Is it relevant? Mm-hmm. Am I just looking for headlines? You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of conscious decisions that have to be made in determining what goes into the book and, and what doesn't. Yeah, legalities and personalities. All of that. It's it's a blunt and honest book, and and you don't you don't pull any punches. If I threw anybody under the bus in any way, I suppose it would be George Clinton. Although I said a lot of wonderful things about him. I mean, I love George, and he was a big part of my life. But I I decided that I have to talk about some of the things that uh, relate to uh, his personality and how mm-hmm. he did business. So there's. There's a bit of that in the book, and, you know, and it's funny because when I, Susie Michelson said, one of the things you have to do is uh, 
reach out to a lot of these people and get quotes. We'll put them on the back of a book. That'll be a really good thing. And so mm -hmm. I did. I got one from Alice Cooper. I got one from uh, Bootsy Collins and Chef Gordon and Sheree Curry from The Runaways. A bunch of people. They were all, wow. uh, all you know, Susie Quattro. Mm -hmm. But I didn't send a, uh, a manuscript to George because I was afraid, you know, he's not going to be too happy about this. And Angie, my girlfriend, says, you know what? send him a book anyway maybe mm -hmm. he won't care maybe you know he just won't ever speak to you again but send him a book see what happens i sent him a book and he he sent me back a terrific quote so whatever it is i wrote about him he either didn't read it or didn't care and uh, he said um first as a booking agent and then as a personal manager for parliament funkadelic during our wildest tours, David Lieber was mission control for the mothership. There Pretty you nice go. Book, back of my book. Absolutely. You know, and and the way I read that was it was it was kind of this um off-paper negotiation. Um <laughs> it, you know, it was it was a it was it was two personalities uh butting heads and then coming to coming to an understanding, which is which I think is is an integral part of of your job description. Am I correct in that? Yeah. And I think, I, I guess in retrospect, you know, the things that I was wondering how George would feel mm -hmm. about the, uh, in the book, he, I guess, you know, like uh, when his uh, drug connections were putting a lot of pressure on him, they wanted to be paid. He owed them a lot of money. He had them sign uh, recording session sheets and then sent the uh, and then sent the uh, session sheets to the record company accountant, and the record company would pay his drug debts. Uh, and there's a couple of things like that. And I I I guess he felt, aren't I cool? Look what I did. And uh, so he wasn't mad about it at all. I guess he uh, he thought he was cool, and in a way, I guess he was. Uh, David Liebert's memoir is Rock and Roll Warrior. Thank you, brother. This is wonderful. Well, thanks, Bill. This has been a lot of fun. And that'll do it for this episode of Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Links to our guests and the Chicago Writers Association, chicagorights.org, are in the notes below. Please subscribe to this podcast and share it with the writers and lovers of writing in your life.